the Gospel of John, chapter 21, page 1075, and we'll look at this in a moment. Well, this has been a, an incredible week. I don't think I've ever experienced anything like this. Um, the tragedy on, on Monday still lingers, and then watching the, the manhunt on Friday, it felt like a movie that we were all a part of. And I, I suppose there's a lot of reflections one could, could make upon this week, and I, I expect in the coming weeks we'll all, as we continue to process what's taken place. But, but I, I think one of the things that strikes me is it's, it's been such a reminder of the fragility of our lives and of the things that, that we hold dear, that uh, we're reminded that life is fragile, that the things we take for granted so often um, are vulnerable, and uh, it, it's, you know, that's, that's unsettling, that's disturbing to know. You, you, know, you think about the Boston Marathon, I mean, what, what, what more peaceful, unifying, happy event is there where people come together from all different countries just to run a race? It's kind of like a mini Olympics in some ways, and yet there to, to have such, such evil um, and such devastation. And it, it reminds you that life is so fragile and the things we hold dear and we trust in and things we take for granted as always being there may not always be there. And so as we come this morning to John's Gospel, to chapter 21, just studying through John's Gospel, and here we are in today's text, John wants to remind us about a reality that is so firm, a reality that is so solid that nothing can shake it. John wants to point us today to a truth, to a fact that, that no bomb could ever blow apart. He wants to show us that something so real that, that no downturn in the stock market could ever devalue it for us. Uh, something so real that no, no legislation put out by the Congress could ever alter this reality. Nothing can touch it. it. It is solid. There's nothing this world can do to assail this truth that John wants to tell us today. And that truth is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and that he's alive. He has taken the worst that this world can throw at a person. He's absorbed it all. He's taken it down to death. And Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Look at John 21, verses 1 to 14. Let me read it. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. 
The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So here's the third resurrection, post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples. The last two Sundays we looked at the first two. Both of them took place in Jerusalem uh, behind locked doors and Jesus came and appeared. But now the scene shifts. Now we're in the northern part of Israel. We're in the, by the Sea of Galilee. And there by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is appearing to these disciples again. And, and this story really has one point. There's one main thing that this story teaches to us. And then I think on closer examination, there's sort of two, what I would call, kind of applications or, or significances to this one main point that, that John wants to kind of subtly suggest to us. So, so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at this text. I want to look at the main point. And then once we have that main point established, I want to look at two applications that come out of that. And and the main point is this. This is what this story is here to tell us. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and he was seen by eyewitnesses. That's the main point. That's what this story is here to show us. Look how it begins. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples. Look how it ends. Verse 14. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So the story begins and ends with the main point. Jesus appeared to his disciples. They saw him. They witnessed him. Even the high point of the story, the, the climax, the, the moment, the, sort of, um, the, the big aha moment of the story is about the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead and the disciples saw him. Look in verse 7. There's the high point. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is who? John. That's John's way of referring to himself in his own gospel. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. There's the big climax of the story. It's Jesus, and the disciples see him. So so you got these guys going fishing, right? It's a great story. They're up in the north in Galilee. They're hanging out together, there's seven of them, Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, sons of Zebedee, a couple other guys, John can't remember now. And, uh, you know, guys sitting around, they, they, they can't just sit around. And so Peter says, I got to go fish. Got to do something. You guys want to fish? Yeah, let's go fish. Very clearly, this is a, a group of men. And um, they get into the boat, they fish all night, catch nothing. The next morning, Jesus is on the beach. You guys get anything? No. Throw the net on the other side. You know, if I was filming this story as a movie, I, I would have the disciples kind of roll their eyes at each other and say, oh, well, might as well, and they throw it over. And then comes this ridiculous catch of fish, this enormous harvest of fish, and that's when John cries out, it is the Lord. And so the whole point is to, is to focus our attention on the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. This is an eyewitness account of that. 
Um, and, 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 you know, that's how this reads. It reads like an eyewitness account. When, when you just read the story at face value, it, it feels like somebody telling a story from things they, they saw. You, you know when people tell stories, they remember little details and little facts, and they'll kind of throw them in. You know, here's John. He's rattling off who was there, and he remembers being on the boat all night, and he remembers what Jesus said. He remembers the number of fish, 153. You know, just the little details of somebody who was there. It has that feel of an eyewitness account. And I suspect it's, it's kind of strange for us perhaps to think of, of the Gospel of John as an eyewitness account because we've been sort of fed this line. It, it, I don't know where, where we picked this up, but maybe it's by watching specials or things we heard in college. But we have this idea that, that what we have in the Gospels isn't really an eyewitness historical account. It's more kind of like church legend. As if, you know, at one point, once upon a time, there was a guy named Jesus. We don't really know what he was like, but there was this guy. And then this guy named Jesus, you know, did some things, and people told the story, and the stories kind of became tall tales, and then the the tall tales eventually became legends, and the legends grew into a myth, and then some church council several hundred years later decided to take the myth and turn it into the Bible. And so what we have in the Bible is the myth that was developed over time. The problem is... That's not how it happened at all. We know historically from the historical records, from the actual manuscripts we have, that this account and the accounts of the four gospel writers come from the generation of the people who were the eyewitnesses. I mean, that's just fact. And, and so this is not some legend and myth that evolved. These are guys telling us the, the eyewitness story. And they're saying, we saw him. You know, I, I love the point Seth brought up last Sunday about, uh, you know, the question, how do good monotheistic Jews go from being monotheistic Jews to worshiping a man named Jesus like that? It just doesn't happen. You, you, I mean, that, that's just sort of a historical fact you've got to somehow explain how a group of regular Jewish people who don't believe in worshiping idols, who don't believe in worshiping people, who stood apart from the whole Roman society because they refused to worship people, because they refused to worship idols, and suddenly, boom, you have a bunch of them willing to die for the proclamation, let's worship Jesus. How did that happen? Well, according to John, it's, we saw him alive. We saw him. It's an eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimonies are powerful things. They're really powerful to talk to somebody who was there, to have one degree of separation from somebody who actually saw something. I think that's one of the reasons why the, uh, the, the terrorist attack this week had such an impact on us is because a lot of us, well, speak for myself, I talk to eyewitnesses, you know, people I know. So it's not just that it happened in, in my town and in a place I know and in familiar surroundings, but, you know, this week, I don't know about you, but probably a lot of us, I... I talked to people who were there. I talked to people who were saying, you know, I was at the finish line, I was right exactly in front of where the bomb was, and I was taking pictures, and I walked away to get something, and 10 minutes later, the explosion. I was right there. I heard it. I felt the concussion. I talked to people this week who said, I looked out my window from my office and I saw the bodies and I saw the carnage from my office. And, you know, when you hear a firsthand account like that, there's something very personal about it. You're just one degree of separation from a really horrific thing. 
And I guess what I want to ask you is, do you realize, people, that when you hold this book, when you read John 21, this is one degree of separation from Jesus Christ. That this guy, John, saw it and he wrote it. And you're reading it. And so we, we, we're seeing Christ here. It's, it's an amazing thing. And what does John want to tell us? That Jesus is raised. That he's, he's alive. You, you know, the eyewitness accounts for, from the Boston Marathon are about carnage and death and destruction. And John wants to give us an eyewitness account of a man who endured carnage and death and beatings and crucifixion. Jesus took the worst that this world could dish out on a man. And then he really died and he really rose because he was more than a man. He was God among us. He was the God man. He was Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And they worshiped him. John wants to tell us that Jesus is alive. That's the message of this. Jesus was dead. He really died. And as Jesus says in Revelation 1, Behold, I live forever and ever. I hold in my hand the keys of death and Hades. Everything that the world could dish out, Christ took. All the fury and hatred of the devil, Christ took. All of the anger of God against our sin in judgment, Jesus took. And he died. And he's alive. And so this is what we need to know. Jesus is alive. People have seen him. Here's the story of his being alive. I don't even think the disciples are struggling with this. You know, they, they, they're still wrestling with this fact. I, you know, what do you make of verse 12? Look at verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now, how do you read that verse? I, I mean, as I read it, what it sounds like to me is they knew it was Jesus, but they still were having a hard time believing it. I mean, that's why it says they didn't dare ask him. So I think the implication is they wanted to ask him. There was a part of them that was still like, is that really you? <laughs> I mean, I know it's you. Of course it's you. But I said, really you? Because this can't be. Haven't you ever seen something so amazing? But you're like, I know it's real, I know I'm seeing real here, but I still can't believe what I'm seeing is real. But it's real. But, oh, really? Can I just, wow, this is so surreal. I feel like, you know, it seems like that's where the disciples were there. They can't believe it's really the Lord because it's such an incredible thing. But he was raised. And finally they see him. Don't you love the fact that Jesus appears three times? Don't you love the patience of our Lord to show himself to us? He just kept coming back to them again and again. So get this. If Jesus is alive, let's just say for the sake of argument, he is risen, then that means it means he's alive and he still is revealing himself to people. He's still reaching out. He's still communicating. I mean, has the risen Christ tried to speak to you and talk to you? All of us who are, who are Christians, who are really believers, we probably could tell you the story of how God was trying to speak to us multiple times leading up to when we finally had that moment and said, oh, it is the Lord, right? You, know, you look back in your Christian life and you say, before I really came to know the Lord, I 
wow, you know, I had my, my mom was always telling me about him. I didn't really listen. And then I had these guys in church, and then I had this Christian friend, or I had this close call, and I knew that it was more than a coincidence. And, and someone up there was looking out for me, but then I kind of went on with my normal life, and then this and this. And finally, it dawned on me. It's really the Lord. He's really alive. He's really speaking to me. And that moment comes of believing. Are, are, you, are you hearing from the risen Christ? Are you listening? Have you come to that moment of saying, maybe this isn't just a series of coincidences. Maybe this is the Lord speaking to me through his word. Boy, when you come to realize that, when, when you come to that moment of saying it is the Lord and seeing that the risen Christ is real and that he's unshakable, there's nothing that can affect him. You know, this world can take everything from you. You can lose anything in this world. You can lose your job. You can lose your career. You can lose a fortune in this world. We can lose our families. We can lose loved ones. We can lose, we can lose our minds. We can lose our memory. Right? We can, lose, uh, we can lose limbs. We can lose our peace of mind. We can lose our life. But if you have Christ, the world can't take that. The world can't touch him because it laid its hands on him and it did its worst and he's risen to indestructible life. And so if you have hold of Christ, there's a sense in which no matter what the world takes, it can't take your life, even if it takes your life. Because Christ is your life. Because he's risen. And so we're seated with him. We're with him. We're raised with him. Our life is in Christ. And so there's nothing this world can ultimately do to us if we have hold of Jesus Christ. Once you see that, once you see that he's the Lord, and once you see that he's your life, once you realize that he's risen, it has a tremendous impact on how you go about your daily life. You just see things differently. Let me just tease out two implications or applications that I think this text is suggesting based upon the fact that Christ is alive and that he is risen. What does that mean for us? What are some of the significances of that? I mean, we could talk about that topic all morning, but let me just point out too that I, I think this text is in a kind of subtle way suggesting. Here's the first one. Number one, because Jesus is alive, because he's really raised, because he is alive right now, that means Jesus is still the one who feeds us and provides for us. He's still the one who sustains us and gives us life and feeds us. Look at the story. Notice the emphasis in this story on the feeding of the disciples. It, it, it seems significant. It's mentioned three times in the story. So they, they get the fish and they realize, wow, it's the Lord, and they come in. And, and what's there waiting for them on shore? Look at verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Then verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Verse 13, Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same thing with the fish. So three times in this story, there's this emphasis on Jesus already having breakfast ready. Now, you know, it seems like there's something there. You've you got to be careful, of course. You can't just take a story and read a spiritual meaning into everything in it. 
You, know, you, you can kind of go crazy with that. Like the number 153. Why is it 153 fish? And you, you should read all the interpretations down through church history of people who've tried to find a hidden symbolism in the number 153. I mean, it would take an actuary to, to come up with some of these solutions. You, you, know, you know what I think the number 153 means? I think it means a lot of fish. <laughs> there was a lot. There was a hundred. You know, again, it's an eyewitness account. You, you get that many fish. You, really, you, you're going to get a bunch of guys with a big catch, and they're not going to count how many fish there are just to prove how awesome it was? <laughs> of course. They're going to go, oh, here we go. One, two, what was it? Ten, no, recount. Ten, eleven, 153, woo! You know, it's, it's just a lot of fish is what 153 means. Because it's, this is what happened. And he's just telling us the details and the facts of this incredible miracle that took place. But I don't think it's reading too much in to see that John is trying to present Jesus to us as the one who continues to feed them. Because look, it's Jesus who's feeding them. It's three times in the story. Also notice this. Where's the other time in John's gospel where there's bread and fish in a meal? It's the feeding of the 5,000. And it's the same word for bread and fish. So it's almost like John is echoing that event. And if you go back to the feeding of the 5,000, what was the main point there? Jesus is our life. Jesus feeds us. He says, I am the bread of life. And, and it's all about, hey, yeah, I gave you guys bread and fish, but don't you realize I am the bread. I am the one who gives you life. You need to believe in me. And so here it is again. Here's Jesus feeding them, and there's this emphasis on bread and fish, bread and fish. And the reader of John's gospel should be like, hmm, that's interesting. Notice also what happens in the next bit, which we'll study next Sunday, where Jesus is talking to Peter. And what does he tell Peter? Verse 15, feed my lambs. Again, verse 17, feed my sheep. So this kind of emphasis on feeding and food and provision. And so, so I think because of that, in a sort of subtle way, not an overt way, John is presenting the risen Jesus to us as the one who continues to feed, as the one who continues to take care of his people, as the one who continues to sustain us because he's really alive. Not just in some kind of ethereal way, like, yeah, when we think about Jesus' life, that's sort of encouraging and inspiring. No, 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 I mean like he's alive physically, he's risen, and his power continues to sustain us as Christians. Um, but in, in, a, in some ways, a really physical, literal sense. You know, do, do this, put a bookmark here, and I want you to turn to the book of Philippians chapter 4. It's on page... 1164, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I want to look at a verse that uh, we do such a wonderful job of misquoting and taking out of context. This is something the evangelical church has done, really gotten good at misquoting. So I want to show you uh, Philippians 4.13. You guys know the verse? I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's a great verse. I can do everything who gives him who gives me strength. I remember when I was, uh, became a Christian, uh, when, when I was a, a young teenager, and I was gotten to this youth group, and there was a poster on the wall in the youth room, and it was a poster of a guy kicking a ball into a soccer goal. And, and the verse on it said, I can do everything who, him who gives me strength. And I think that's how we use it. Like, yeah. 
You could do anything in Christ. Whatever your goals are, whatever your dreams, you can accomplish them. You know, guys on the football team, we could do anything through Christ who gives us strength. Of course, there's some other guy on the other team saying, we can do anything through. So which one does Jesus listen to? I don't know. The team with more Christians? I don't know. Yeah, so it gets kind of weird, but, oh, I know. I can, you know, if I make the right investment, I can make a million bucks. Guy can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. What is this verse really about? Look at the context. I think it's about the sustaining power of the risen Christ. Look at verse 11. Paul's talking about money. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. Man, I've been really poor. I know what it's like to not know where my food's coming from. I've, had, I've been really rich. I've had times in my life where I've had tons of resources. I have learned the secret to being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Really? What's the secret? I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Because Jesus is alive, I know that he will sustain and provide for me as I trust him, whether he's going to take me through real lean times where I don't have enough money and I, don't, I can't sustain myself, or whether I'm in plenty, I know that Christ can sustain his strength in me. So it's not about accomplishing your dreams through the power of positive thinking. It's about contentment in your circumstances because Christ is your provision, because he's really alive and he's really sustaining our life. But it's not just our physical lives. I I think, you know, clearly, if you go back to John 21, Jesus not only feeds us our physical lives, he feeds our spiritual lives as well. You you know, Jesus says to Peter, and we'll again see this next Sunday, but feed my lambs, feed my people. He's not telling Peter to go out and, and start a literal catering ministry to Christians. He's talking spiritually. There's a, a spiritual feeding. You, you know, do you realize that your faith has to be fed? You ever notice that about faith? Faith can kind of go up and kind of go down. You ever had times in your life when you've been like super strong in faith, and other times you felt like you haven't had any faith? Faith, faith's like your body. You've got to feed it. Faith has to have a regular feeding from the Lord. And, uh, you know, sometimes people come to me as a pastor and they're really struggling in their faith and they're doubting and they're in crisis. And maybe sometimes they're, they're stuck in sins and they can't defeat sin and they're giving in to temptation and they're like, I'm so lost. I don't know how to get on the right track. My faith is like almost snuffed out. And, you know, the first question is, what you been eating? What, what, what are you feeding on? Are you being fed by Christ? You know, we need Jesus, who is the bread of life, Jesus, who is the manna from heaven, to feed our faith. He, he has to keep giving us his, his sustenance to strengthen us. And so Christ feeds us. Just get real practical for a minute. Can I just suggest three ways that Christ feeds us, and then we'll go on and look at the other application from this text. How does the risen Jesus feed us? Number one, he feeds us through his word, first and foremost. We, we receive spiritual sustenance when we study God's Word. Jesus is the Word, and He speaks and feeds, to, feeds us through His Word. And, and that's why we need to be people who read His Word. Um, you know, you've you got you to gotta approach the Bible the way you approach your cereal in the morning. What do you think about when you get out of bed? I'm thinking about food. 
and maybe you're more spiritual. I get out of bed, I'm just thinking like, oh, what kind of cereal do I want? At Frosted Flakes this morning and two Chobani yogurts. Oh, it was heaven. I love yogurt. Love Frosted Flakes. The more the cereal milk turns color, the better. I like Fruity Pebbles. You know, and I just think about, I think about my cereal, think about my food. And I think sometimes we approach the Bible more like, um, you, you know, brushing your teeth. You just got to do it. You got to brush your teeth. Ugh. You know? And, and then we think about it like, well, I got, I'm doing a Bible reading through the year. I got to get through two chapters today. <sighs> okay, here we go. You know, and you read through it. That's not how you approach the Bible. Don't, don't look at it like brushing your teeth. You got to look at it like breakfast. Like if I don't eat today, I'm going to be faint. If I don't read God's word today, I know I'm going to be liable to all kinds of temptations. Haven't you found it? If you go a couple days, a couple weeks without reading the scripture regularly, I just, I got no spiritual armor on. I, I, the devil can have his way with me. And I'll go right along into my sinful habits and patterns that I'm personally prone to. We need daily manna, daily feeding from the Lord through his word. We gather in churches on a regular basis, a basic Christian habit, to gather for the teaching of the word, to hear it read, to hear it prayed, to hear it preached, to go to Sunday school, to get together afterwards and say, what did you think about the word? What, what, what did you think about what was preached? What did you get out of it? And com- you know, we call this in the old days conferencing together, talking about the word of God and how it's affecting us. That's what we do together as Christians. You know, God's word comes out. You, you know the great thing about about the Bible is, is, if, is when it's preached, even if it's preached by someone who's not a great preacher, it can still feed you. I don't know, have you ever guys ever heard a sermon by someone who wasn't a great preacher? I know you never have. I'm sure you're not hearing that right now. But you know, you hear a sermon, someone's not the greatest preacher, they're having an off day, you're not sure what the heck they're talking about, you get lost. But here's what I've found is if a preacher is trying to preach the Bible faithfully, you can always be fed. You know, and you may have to work a little bit for it. <laughs> you know, so, so, I think that's something too. Sometimes we, we act like immature baby Christians. It's like, you've got to package it really well or I'm not going to eat it. It's like, but mature Christians, mature Christians can be fed even by mediocre preaching when it's from the Word. Because mature Christians are going, I'm not really here for the funny stories and the entertaining rhetoric. I'm here to hear the voice of my Savior in the Word. And and so even a a mediocre preacher, if he's just opening the Bible and trying to explain it, that's what I find is that at some point in the sermon, as I'm sitting there going like, I don't know what he's talking about, something will happen with the Word and I'll be like, oh, the Lord is talking to me and I'm tuning in. Because Christ feeds us through his word. Christ feeds us, number two, through the communion table. We don't believe that, that the body and blood of Jesus is literally in the elements. It, it's not true that when you take the body and blood, you're literally putting Jesus in your mouth. But Jesus is communing with us. That's why it's communion. We're communing together. We're communing with the Lord. He's there, and he feeds us through the Lord's table. I think a third way that Christ uh, feeds us is not only through his word, not only through the Lord's table. He feeds us through the, the relationships within the body. You know, again, after a church service or at a Bible study or at a meeting with other Christians, you know, you, you talk about what's going on and someone says, well, yeah, you let me pray for you about that. Let me give you a word of encouragement. Let, let me just share a thought with you. Can I help you? Do you need some money? 
You know, the things Christians are supposed to do for each other is care for each other's needs. And when you hear about a Christian who's struggling and they're pouring out their heart, you know, try not to do this. Hey, I'll be praying for you. Don't do that. Say this. This is something I've I've just, because you know why? Confession, I say that and then I don't do it. But if I say, I'm going to pray for you right now, people usually say, okay. And you pray for them right there. It's a little awkward. Who cares? Just pray. And then I just put my hand on their shoulder. I pray for them. And then even if I don't remember to do it later, I did it. And we prayed for each other. And I think Jesus strengthens and encourages his body through the body. Or to put it another way, how do we get fed by the risen Jesus? Through local churches. As the word is preached and taught and talked about, and as the the Lord's Supper is shared, and as the body ministers to the body, the Holy Spirit, through the risen Christ, is feeding His church in a strange, supernatural, and wonderful way. Because... He's alive. That's the point. If he wasn't alive, it would just kind of be all sociology and organizational manipulation. But because he is alive, there's real power in the feeding of his flock and of his people. Well, that brings me to the second application. I'll close with this one, which is that Christ not only, the risen Christ not only feeds his people, he also empowers his people for the work. He feeds us so that we can go feed others. He strengthens us so that we can go out and take the gospel to others. I, I, think, that, I, I think that is the, signif- the secondary significance behind the great catch of fish. I, I think the primary significance is it points to the fact that this is the risen Jesus. But also, I, I think there's a message here about the, the work that we're called to do. You know, again, there's this emphasis on the fish. Right? They, they have this Huge catch of fish in verse 6. And then in verse 8, they're lugging the fish ashore. And then in verse 11, they're counting the fish. And so there's all this emphasis not only on the feeding, but on the fishing. And so I wonder if, if what's taking place here is, again, John is in a subtle way positioning the risen Christ to us as the feeder of the church, but also as the one who's going to empower the work and ministry of the church. You know, you look at the, the whole uh, post-resurrection narrative in John from chapter 20 through chapter 21, one of the th- repeated themes in this narrative is we've been sent to do a work. You remember back in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Do you remember back from last Sunday when Seth preached and, and we read about the, the whole thing of because you've seen me, you've believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe? So in other words, this idea that others are going to be told and they're going to believe. Even next Sunday, Jesus says to Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, take care of my people. So, so the sense and, and the theme of sending and mission and us going into the world to be those who explain things and to talk about Christ is very strong in these passages. And so I, I wonder if there's some kind of sense here that Christ is showing them that he's going to give them success in this work. You know, you just got to wonder, when this thing happened, was Peter having deja vu all over again? Because in Luke chapter 5, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he was first calling Peter, we had the story of the miraculous catch of fish that, that Kevin read for us. And then here at the end of his ministry, another miraculous catch of fish. 
In the first one, Jesus is saying, follow me. In the second one, Jesus says again, we'll see next week, follow me, verse 19. So there's a a nice kind of bookending of the lives of the disciples in their ministry with Jesus on earth with the miraculous catch of fish. I find that really encouraging if that's the case, to think that it's Jesus Christ who gives the catch. We just fish. We just let down the nets, and and we keep fishing. But Christ is the one who brings people to himself through our efforts. And I just have to say, you know, I'm I'm trying not to overread too much into this, but I almost can't help it as a New England Christian, as a New Englander, as a pastor in New England. I get so much comfort, especially when I read verse 3. They fished all night and caught nothing. Any New Englanders here? Can I have an amen on that? <laughs> we've fished all night and we've caught nothing. We've been praying for years. We've been telling people about the Lord for years. We've been trying to trick them to come to a Christmas Eve service for years. Because <sighs> we just want them to know about Jesus. Not because we're trying to trick people, but we just want them to hear about Jesus. And we've given them books about Jesus on their birthday for years, and we keep sending them a link to a website, to a sermon. (sighs) All night, fish, 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 nothing. And it's so good to know that if the risen Christ will say, set down your nets on the right side, there can be a great catch. Even if we've gone all night without a catch. Because he's the Lord. What was it about the right side? Nothing. It wasn't that they did the wrong fishing technique and now they got to do the right fishing technique. The whole point is it's just Jesus saying where to fish. It's Jesus doing it. And the change inside is just to suggest that nothing happens until Christ speaks the word. And I'm so encouraged because I know just from studying church history, there have been these wonderful eyewitness accounts of times in the history of the church of great revival and great awakening where Jesus, as, as if he has said to his church, now put your net on this side, and suddenly there's been a, a great harvest and God has worked in great ways. Do you know that's happened right here in Boston? This was one of the places where the great awakening happened in the 18th century. I've mentioned this before, but look, can I uh, just take you a little deeper into the detail this morning? Can I read you some account, eyewitness accounts of the First Great Awakening right here in Boston? Uh, the year was 1740. It was September. And George Whitfield was coming to Boston, and Boston was all psyched up about it. He hadn't been to Boston. He was coming here to preach. George Whitfield had uh, preached all over England and had come to the States, and God was just using Whitfield along with Wesley and guys like Howell Harris and Daniel Rowland, and he was using these, these men from England and, and Wales and Scotland to come and preach the gospel, and they were traveling around, and God was just blessing the work, and there's a great revival breaking out. So finally he came to Boston. He preached for uh, 24 days in Boston on his first visit here. He preached in Boston. He went up on the North Shore, Ipswich, places like that, and traveled around, and, and God blessed his work here and at his farewell sermon when, when they finally said farewell to him, he preached on Boston Common, and the newspapers say there were 23,000 people 
pressed into Boston Common. No microphone. And that was back in the day where 23,000 was more than the population of Boston, if you can believe it. So more than the whole population of Boston came to Boston, to Boston Commons, and Whitfield preached to them to much effect. And, and it affected Boston. It, it changed. It, let me give you a, a description. Here's an eyewitness description of the spiritual climate in Boston before Whitfield came and before the awakening happened. Here's how one minister writes. He says, The general decay of piety seemed to increase among us in Boston. Few came to me in concern about their souls. In other words, this, this Boston pastor is saying, hardly anyone cares about eternal things. They're not coming to me asking about Christ. No one cares. And so I perceive it was in others. And I remember some of the ministers were wont to express themselves as greatly discouraged with the growing declension, both in principle and practice. Get this, especially among the rising generation. Kids these days. What's going to happen to the new generation? Oh, they're so lost. The new kids coming up, they don't care anything about the Lord. They don't care anything about spiritual things. They're not concerned about their eternal souls. And then Whitfield came and God blessed his ministry. And they caught a lot of fish. Here's some more eyewitness accounts from one of the the, uh, pastors who was there. He says, but upon Mr. Whitfield's leaving us, Great numbers in the town were so happily concerned about their souls as we had never seen anything like it before. Get this one. Now was such a time as we never knew. The Reverend Mr. Cooper was wont to say that more came to him in one week in deep concern about their souls than in the whole 24 years of his preceding ministry. Talk about fishing all night with nothing to show for it. And suddenly, he he swamped. I can say the same as to the numbers who repaired to me. Mr. Cooper had said about 600 persons in three months. Mr. Webb had said in the same space about 1,000. So in other words, each of these pastors was reporting that in a three-month period, 600 or 1,000 people had come going, I've got to talk to you, Pastor. I need to know how to be saved. I don't know where I'm going. I need to know more about Christ. Help me. Help me. I don't know if I'm saved. You know, And it's not like they'd done anything different. It's not like they'd changed fishing techniques. It's not about the techniques and the method. It's just that the Lord said, let the net down the other side. And the Lord brought the increase. And it wasn't just one certain group of people. This minister said, they're repaired to us. In other words, they came to us. Both boys and girls, young men and women, Indians and slaves, heads of families and aged persons, persons far advanced in years, Old people never get saved. They're set in their ways, right? No. People far advanced in years came, afraid of being left behind, while others were hastening to the blessed Redeemer. Get this. This wondrous movement continued a year and a half after Whitfield's departure from Boston. In that time, 30 religious societies were instituted. Ministers, besides attending to their usual work, preached in private houses almost every night. Hmm, I don't know if I really want a revival preaching every night in the house. Wow. Chapels were always crowded. The face of the town seemed strangely altered, one man writes. Taverns were found empty of all but lodgers. Our lectures flourished, wrote one pastor. Our Sabbaths are joyous. Our churches increase and our ministers have new life and spirit in their work. 
What did that? What was the trick? What was the secret? What was the technique? It was just the power of the risen Christ. And I read that and I think, oh, we so need that in Boston today. There's such a need here in Boston. Such a need in New England. We love this area. We love these people. But they just don't care about the Lord. Not really. I mean, what, what do people care about? They care about the Red Sox and making money and drinking and grilling out and going to the Cape and just try to keep your head down and have a nice life. Dunkin' Donuts. But, you know, where are people saying, but what about my soul? What about my eternal destiny? Is there a God? Is there a Christ? I, you know, I even wonder with, with these bombings, it's like people have been stirred up, but a week from now, are people in Boston going to be wrestling with eternal matters? Or are we just going to be back to business as usual? I wish for the former, I fear the latter. And so what does Boston need? Do we need some new fishing technique? Do we need a new, a new music format? Do we need a new program? Do we need a new curriculum? Do, do we need you know, past, more pastors with ties, more pastors without ties? You know, what, do, do we need certain lighting? Do, do we need to change what time we meet? Do we need to maybe do more candles in our services or less candles or more incense? Or, you know, what's the trick to getting people? It's not a fishing technique. We need the power of the risen Christ to come again, which is not something we can orchestrate. You know, we can organize an evangelistic meeting. It's not bad to do that. But please don't ever mistake organized evangelistic meetings for revival. They're different things. Revival can come to an evangelistic meeting, but evangelistic meeting is us trying to get the word out. A revival is something that comes from heaven. In God's time, in God's way, like this catch of fish. This is what we need in Boston. So, Lord, we'll keep fishing. We'll keep fishing. We're not going to stop fishing. And we're catching some fish. One, two, one. But, oh, I want to see the 153 catch that only the Lord can bring. We need to be praying for it and yearning for it. I fear that the spiritual condition of this area that we love is so far gone that at this point, the Lord has got to do something dramatic. It's time to reach for the fire alarm and pull it and say, Lord, we need emergency help that only you can give through the power of your Spirit. Are you praying for revival? Are you praying for a great, powerful awakening? God will give us strength to keep fishing, but let us not be content with merely fishing. Let us also pray that New England might know that Jesus is alive. That New England would know that Jesus is really alive. That all the scholarly lies that tell us that the Bible's a bunch of hooey and Jesus is a myth that all that would just get blown up by a great miracle of the outpouring of God's Spirit that cannot be explained by one church's technique or another church's strategy or the charisma of a particular preacher, but it might be the power of God coming down in our region again. Are we praying for that? Do you think God could do that? 
Do you believe Jesus is alive? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray to You. We invoke Your name because we believe You are actually hearing us. Because You are alive. You are the Lord. You reign over all things. Oh, Lord, we pray that You would cause us to see Your glory. That You would keep communicating to us and reaching out to us again and again so that we might have a deeper awareness of Your risen life. Lord, I pray that your resurrection life and your resurrection power would become not just a doctrine on our statement, but it might become a life-changing reality that would anchor us, that would become our life, Lord. Lord, I do pray that you would continue to feed us, continue to feed this church, Lord. I pray this week as people are shaken and their faith is wobbly because of the attacks that took place. Lord, I pray even today as people hear your word, as people sing your word and pray your word, that that you would be feeding this church, you'd be strengthening this body in faith. And Lord, we pray that you would feed us not just so that we could be happy and well-fed, but so that we might go out and be strengthened for the mission you've given us, Lord. So God, give us strength to keep fishing. Give us strength to keep praying and casting the nets and not give up no matter how long the night seems. But Lord, we also pray that you might say the word and there might be another great Great catch here in Boston. One that would shake the secularism and intellectualism and nominalism of New England to its core. It would make men and women say, what must I do to be saved? It would make people cling to the risen Christ. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray that you would exert your power on this region again. Lord Jesus, we love New England. We love Boston. We love the South Shore and the people in it. And we believe you do too. And so, Lord Jesus, for your own sake, would you show that you are real and alive by sending us another great visitation of your Spirit. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.